Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you for taking the time to stop by and for lending me your ears. The only non-renewable resource you've got, that's your time. I know many of you are potentially new here, having just heard about our show perhaps at RE+. I'm so grateful to those who tuned into our live stream of the Media Zone and who shared about our show with your friends during the show. We had such a fun time. If you're new here, I do hope you'll get a ton of value from this episode. I know you can be doing anything with your time, so I'm grateful that you've chosen to share your attention with us. It is not misplaced, believe me. Today's entrepreneur is a dear friend and longtime solar warrior, Andrew Chester. We're going to hear more about his business. Uh, but for those who are discerning and recognize the name, yep, he was part of Green Skies. Uh, we featured his co-founder, Mike Silvestrini, a few times here on the platform. And I've been begging Andrew to come back to talk all about the rise to to fame and glory as the largest distributed generation platform in the United States uh, a few years ago. Andrew is up to some very, very interesting things now. You're going to want to stick around and tune into that. If you do like these kinds of conversations, deep dives with real frontline solar warriors, industry founders, well, you're in the right place. I'd encourage you to go ahead and subscribe to the show. That is how many other solar warriors and climate curious or climate champions just like yourself ensure that they won't miss our twice weekly content just like this. We've got more than 500 founder stories and startup advice all nested over at mysuncast.com in our back catalog. Most of you in whatever player you're in, you can probably only see back to maybe episode 300 or so. That means you've missed out on the first 300 or so episodes that we do have on the website. I just want to thank all of you who've supported us for the last seven years as we round out our seven years in the in the podcast game and uh, nearly 17 years in the solar industry total. <laughs> I've got a long backstory just like Andrew, but let's get to his Let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to a very powerful conversation here on Suncast. Every so often I get to bring in a guest who I thought would have been a guest a long time ago or a lot sooner than today. And today is one of those examples. Today's conversation is with a longtime friend in the industry, Andrew Chester. And Andrew has gone on to have quite an accomplished track record and career. We're going to talk a bunch about that. But the thing that I think is the through line I've enjoyed about Andrew is his perseverance, his dogged personality from a business development perspective, ability to just kick down doors and find the right customers. And I mean the right customers and really focus and hone in on how to build a portfolio of clients that you can service and that can serve the interests of your business, not just taking any opportunity that comes along, although there are lots of those along the way for all of us. Andrew's a true renewable energy expert who is passionate about all the things that represent why we are taking such climate action as solar warriors. And he spent more than a decade working directly with some of the world's largest companies to create renewable energy goals and projects to implement. His newest venture is called Teleon. We'll get into that. But he was also a partner and board member of Green Skies, which if you remember episode 85, was touted as the largest distributed generation developer in the United States in episode 400, where one of Andrew's partners and friend, uh, Mike Zolestrini, was also a guest here on the show. But this guy, this guy, well, Mike navigated that business from the CEO perspective. It was Andrew that was the rainmaker and uh, opportunity creator. And I don't say that in jest or to puff his uh, ego, but it is absolutely true that he has learned to partner successfully with hundreds of companies and bring many, many megawatts of solar online. So I am certain that you've clicked play because you want to learn how to develop better relationships with customers on the long curve of your business cycle. And you want to learn from someone who's done it hundreds, probably thousands of times. With that, welcome to Suncast at long last, my friend, Andrew. 
Nico, thanks very much for having me. It's a pleasure. And you're right. You know, I thought this would have happened long ago, but uh, it's good to be here. I remember we met so many years ago. I'll never forget my friend uh, and at the time boss, Jonathan Pickering, uh, who's British. And Nico, you've got to call this guy up in uh, Connecticut. They've got all these projects in, uh, with, with these targets. And we were doing a bunch of targets at the time with this product called Lumetta. Right. Um, you remember that Lumetta? Yeah. You know, we were just joking. I mean, you're still in my phone as, as Nico from Lumetta, <laughs> so which is pretty crazy. You got to change that dude. Seven years. At Suncast. I know. I probably should update that. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that immediately stood out to me when I first met you is I had had the privilege of working with the decision makers in places like Walmart and Target. And I remember we both were sort of dancing around the topic of like, wait, are you talking to Mac? <laughs> You know, and it was like sort of name dropping, but not wanting to name drop because you didn't want to inadvertently tell me who was the decision maker at at the companies that you were working with. And that was one of those early moments where I saw someone who was my age and across the country and really moving the needle on corporate procurement at a time where very few people were making headway. And I mean, like really only, you know, you and I could name probably less than a dozen companies that were moving the needle at a corporate procurement level right. that weren't named Sun Edison. Um, Solar City was one of them who had kind of the Western region for Walmarts. We'll get into the forays of Green Skies because it's a fun story. But at what point did you realize that solar was going to be a thing for you? My understanding or recollection is that this is like your first job out of college. So talk about making the decision that you were going to form this solar company and how you got a sense that, that, that renewable energy was the path you were going to d- direct your, uh, your career. Yeah. So you're right in that, you know, I, I kind of teamed up with, with Mike Silvestrini early, early on, right after college, I was probably, man, I was probably 20, 22, maybe 23, but you know, it's funny, you know, we, we've known each other a long time. Our families were from generally the same area. And so the story, as I remembered, at least we were, we were at a bar uh, and my sister was home, who at the time was living in Hawaii. And, you know, I hear this this guy talking to her about kilowatt hour rates in Hawaii. <laughs> and and she was, uh, her eyes were crossing. And I was like, yeah, let me, let me talk to this guy for a sec. So we, he, Mike and I talked the entire, the entire evening just about, you know, potential, you know, kilowatt hour rates, solar energy. Uh, and, and he was thinking about starting a company. And so it kind of started there. We exchanged many, many emails and phone calls and met you know, over the next you know, few weeks or months. But it was clear to me that this was an industry that was on the brink of, of exploding or growing and, and one that I wanted to be a part of. It just so happened it was at a point in my life where you know, it was my first, first role out of school. So um, you know, I kind of, I don't want to say fell into it, but I was gravitating, really, really gravitated toward it, towards it uh, you know, early on. You mentioned your sister. Do you have a big family? Uh, n- not huge. I mean, I'm one of three. I'm the youngest. You're the so youngest. I have an older brother, an older sister. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to know, growing up, were you surrounded by a particular type of environment that would have suggested you would become more entrepreneurial? What was that conversation like typically around the dinner table? You know, I, I come from a very loving and, and great you know, set of parents that, you know, they're both teachers and they're very forward thinking and, and progressive. I wouldn't say that they ever really pushed me or any of my, my siblings to, to kind of go out on our own and, and, and into that entrepreneurial world. That is something that I just, I think, had in me. Um, you know, neither my brother nor sister you know, do that. But, you know, I had a very young age, it started to, right? I mean, my first job, I was detailing you know, boats at a, at a boat dealership in, in, in town. And the next summer I started my own boat detailing company. So it was always something that like stuck, stuck with me. I'm not really sure why, but I will say, you know, my parents were very supportive of kind of anything and everything that I did. So, you know, for that, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful. Along that line, what career path did you not go down, but always thought you would? You know, Nico, I'd love to sit here and tell you what, what I, what I, would like to have done, which is probably something in the world of skiing. But, you know, I, I really am not cut from the cloth to be kind of the, the, the backcountry tour, tour guide or anything of that nature. I think really what, where I, I'm a deal creator. Um, and so 
I would have naturally gravitated towards, I think, some form of of deal creation. And I think the the kind of the natural fit would have been real estate in some way, shape or form, whether that would be, you know, selling, developing or something within that in that vertical. There's a lot of similarities uh, that I've learned over the years between the two. But I, I would say that, you know, if I didn't find myself in the in the clean energy sector, it would probably naturally have kind of fallen into into real estate would be my guess. We talked a bit about my early impression of your ability to sort of break through the noise and find the right customers. Could you talk a bit about the early thesis for what Green Skies was going to try and accomplish and how you, as the tip of the spear, the guy that was appointed to go out and sell that vision, thought about going and finding early clients? Yeah. Wow. How far back should I go here? As far Um, as you want. I remember there was some, everybody has those like had to do it early clients. And then that moment where you realize like, oh, I don't have to work this hard because this kind of client would be the same kind of return, but more scale. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think if, if folks have listened to, to Mike's podcast number 85, you've probably heard a few anecdotes of kind of our early, our early on projects, but it's kind of funny to, to go back a little bit further. You know, when Mike and I were really first starting, Mm -hmm. we didn't really know, Mm -hmm. you know, what green skies was yet. Um, and it's, I always think back to one of the first, you know, quote unquote meetings or calls that we had, you know, we'd, it was with a family It was going to a home and, you know, we had our map quest directions printed out and we were driving at, you know, six o'clock, seven o'clock at night. We got lost, showed up late and spoke, you know, with a, with a great you know couple for a half hour to an hour in their kitchen. And it was for like, I don't know, four or five kilowatts. And, you know, we walked out and I was like, this is just not what we should be focusing on. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, what, what that did after the fact was, you know, it kind of sent me down the the path of trying to define kind of our, our, our space or, or mm-hmm. where we were going to play, you know, in this industry. And it was at a time when lots of dollars were being invested into residential and utility scale and manufacturing. A lot of, a lot of you know, uh, folks thought that winners would be in, in kind of creating the actual products. Uh, but it left the, the commercial industrial sector more or less overlooked. And for better or for worse, that's, that's where we found ourselves. You know, I, at the time, you know, was using some new software that just came out called Google Earth. And we were, you know, kind of roof hunting, if you will. And I remember finding just big flat roofs and saying, wow, who, who is that? Yeah, you know, kind of zooming in and saying like, oh, actually, that's that's a Target or that's that's a Walmart or that's this or that's that. And it kind of sent me down the, the path of just cold calling. You know, we didn't necessarily have the technologies that we have today. Um, LinkedIn wasn't a thing. I think LinkedIn existed, but it wasn't you know predominantly used. So, you know, I at the time was was literally calling the store and asking to talk to a store manager. And then that, you know, individual is like, well, this sounds interesting, but you need to talk to headquarters. We can't do anything. So it was learning how to navigate big business, I think was, was one kind of difficult, you know, piece. You know, I remember distinctly utilizing, you know, this, this piece of software is called Hoover's uh, at the time and, and just trying to understand kind of the, the, either the positions or titles or potentially they gave you names. Uh, but yeah, cold calling into these big businesses and finally navigating your way over time to the right person. And it was, it was then that, you know, no, these companies certainly did not have, you know, ESG or CSR teams and, and uh, most didn't even have anyone kind of focusing on energy, uh, specifically renewable energy. So it was trying to find the right team of people or person to even talk to about this. So that was kind of step one that was, that was, that was difficult in, in kind of what we set out to do first. But then it, was, it turned into this educational process. You know, folks did not know what this industry was at the time. This is, this is back to 2009, 10, 11-ish timeframe. And so, you know, I found myself, again, I was, I was a young mid-20s person myself and, you know, learning a lot about, you know, different policies and, and incentive programs and utility, you know, utility programs around the country. But it was educating these these companies. And I think what's interesting is it kind of became, I guess, my, but certainly our company's calling card, if you will, of being kind of a trusted, you know, third-party energy expert and, and trying to guide 
you know, these companies into markets that make sense and educating them on, you know, potential risks. And, um, you know, that, that I think has stuck with me and it's, it's, it kind of happened innately, right? It just happened due to that is what we were doing at the time of green skies and being in a new and evolving, uh, industry and trying to stay on top of, um, you know, incentives that would dry up overnight and saying, you know, sorry, I know I talked to you about this state, but now we should really be thinking about this, this market over here. So it was, it was just kind of having that handheld or white gloved service approach to kind of how we were, you know, positioning the, you know, the offering and the company uh, that I think, you know, really started by accident and, and kind of turned into, uh, you know, our calling card, if you will, you know, at Green Skies. You remember any particular aha moments early on when you realized the exact way that you were helping the clients that you'd began to focus on, like position the offering right? What was it that began to resonate for them? What was it that particularly you were trying to help them solve for where you go, oh gosh, I, I've now understood how their business works well enough that I see how this solves that. You know, I think when we met, right, we, I was trying to solve for putting solar on rooftops in areas where it snowed, frankly. You know, we were trying to find lightweight options, I think, for Walmart at the time. So that's when we were talking to, you know, folks like you at Lumetta and, and Solyndra and some other kind of innovative products. So, you know, that, you know, kind of convincing or, or, or telling them how things would, would, would work and, and feel was, was certainly one thing. But I think the bigger moment was, you know, when we basically were doing quite a bit of volume with Walmart they were a PPA you know, client. And then we were doing a reasonable amount of work with, with Target. They were, they were purchasing projects uh, off, off cash balance sheet. And then kind of at one point they said, how are you doing this scale you know, with, with Walmart? And the answer was, well, it's called a power purchase agreement. Uh, and so we educated Target on what a PPA was and walked them through it. And it turned into them being our, our biggest client and having just reoccurring year over year volumetric growth where we're like, wow, this, this industry is going to take off like a rocket ship. So I think that was probably you know, the big moment you know, when we kind of took a company from zero to eventually a few years later, you know, we helped them create a, a 500 store public facing goal uh, and, and played our part in helping them achieve that over the following years. But I think that was, that was a big moment for us. A couple of things come to mind for me. You're in your mid twenties. You're sitting with people who are seasoned operations experts. How did you prepare for those meetings? And beyond just like the natural hubris of being in 20 something and like a sense of confidence, how did you overcome the voice in your head that said, I'm not old enough or gray haired enough to convince these people? You know, it didn't come right away. I think that came with with knowledge, right? Confidence comes comes off the, the heels of, of, of knowing you're you're the, you're the industry expert in, in certain areas. And I think what, what was interesting is, you know, when we were starting to grow that company, it was basically me and Mike, to be honest with you. There was a few other folks, but you know, we were we were a two man band for quite a while, and it it was to the benefit of myself. I think I learned a, you know every different facet of of the industry. You know, I would be you know on the phone or in meetings with you know energy experts, and then they'd pull in an accountant or they'd pull in a lawyer or a roofing you know consultant or whatever it may be. You know, I found myself talking with all different you know, folks within, within an organization. So you become knowledgeable in all of those different, you know, facets. And so, you know, kind of doing that for years and years, you then start to walk in the room and you can talk the talk to whomever kind of sits in front of you. And I, I mean, I remember sitting down in many meetings and, and almost saying like, guys, let's get the gorilla out of the room here. Like, I know I'm 27. <laughs> like, and we'd kind of chuckle about it and then kind of get into, you know, talking specifics about, you know, putting solar on their, on their piece of property or rooftop, whatever it may be. But that's a really clever negotiation tactic as well, right? It is important to, it's no different than, than calling out something where you're trying to break into an account and you know that your biggest competitor is their supplier. The first thing you would say in the meeting, because it's the elephant in the room is like, Hey guys, just get this out of the way. Like we're late to the party, <laughs> right? right? These kinds of yeah. tools are useful in in sales, it's things, it's things that you and I perhaps take for granted that I'm trying to, I want folks to be able to, I want to tease it out so folks can recognize that uh, I think a lot of folks, myself included, suffered from this, um, 
you know, this, this, uh, fear of rejection based on our age. Cause we were all so young trying to, trying to sell this. And I felt that was one of the things that impressed me as well was your ability to both to have, but also to appear, uh, like an expert to have expertise and appear like an expert at a, at a young age. How long do you feel like it took you to really feel comfortable in that skin, the energy expert that you were portraying? You know, I've, I have to, I have to think back to the time frame. you know, and I don't, mean to quote the old, the old book of what, 10,000 hours, but I mean, it, it takes time, you know, it didn't, ha- like I said, it didn't happen quickly. You know, it was, it was after, you know, negotiating PPAs with, with, you know, large companies and, and getting through the build and, and execution into asset management and kind of being able to talk to every corner of the, the business or of, of the development cycle over time to then really be able to, to know all of the different things that can, that can pop up along the way. So, I mean, if I, if I were to think about it, you know, by 2011, we were 2010, 2011, we were doing pretty good volume with folks. So, you know, we started, it was probably five five or six years, you know, into where I really um, was, I would say confident enough to, to talk to literally anyone you could throw at me, I would say. Yeah. And that's the Andrew Chester that I met was circa 2010. I remember back not to, you know, you just jogged my memory when we, do you remember at SPI, was it 2010 or 11? You used to do something really cool. And I, I I actually took a page out of your book. You, I remember had this little notebook Uh and towards the end of dinner, you, you went around and asked folks a question, a, a predictive question yeah. to then be able to come back to them. And it was the drip, right? It was to be able to come back to the, to the, to the person, whether it was six months or a year or two years later, and you had something to kind of tie it back to. And that, that was like the first point where I was like, wow, he, he's good. And that, that starts to forge relationships. You know, that, that was a really, that was a good, good move. <laughs> yeah. I want to give credit where credit's due. If he's ever listening, uh, I've asked him to be an, a guest as well. And he is like you, not, not, he's avoiding the limelight, but the then uh, general manager of, or maybe CEO of Lumetta, Randy McEwen, I think was also oh, in that yeah, meeting, right? Because that would have yep. been Dallas 2011. I remember that meeting specifically. That's right. Mike and I talked about it because this is funny. Do you remember what we were predicting? Uh, I don't, I forget. I can remember the restaurant. It was definitely Dallas. Was, yeah, this is no. a page out of Randy McEwen's book. And i um, pretty sure the JA Solar folks were there at dinner with us. So it was, what is the stock market, what's the Dow Jones going to end at? And our guesses were like in the, on the high side, like 14, 14, 15, right? Put it in perspective. Wow. I think it might, might've been even like 13. And um, Mike and I were laughing about this recently. Yeah. And that's a, it's a really good tool. Uh, but I give credit to Randy for that. I appreciate that you, that, that helped you and, and you used it. He certainly uh, gave me a lot. Uh, you know, one of the things for, through Suncast that I hope people are able to glean is that a lot of the value in my life that I've been able to deliver to others is because I've been mentored by guys like Jonathan Pickering and Randy McEwen, Stephen Kelly, and, and many others, Mike Grunow, like I could name the list goes on all people that I know that you've yeah. done work with at some point, those little examples, those little abilities to what they do is they create a sense of shared experience. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I've always tried to find ways to, it, it, it's knowing your audience and then trying to, connect right I mean, and that's where i've always found you know success in this space in in kind of with what i do i guess specifically is is relationship building i've never been kind of a race to the bottom pricing rfp response type of person it's it's always been you know trying to you know forge long-standing relationships and yeah you know you pick up whether whether you do it on purpose or not you, you pick up good tax along the way from you know whether it's folks like yourself or others that that kind of come into your your world but it works you know and to the point you know, i've had a lot of really really good connections made with with different individuals over the years and they've now many of them have moved on to other companies and kind of scattered around and you stay you stay in touch and connected and it's, it's it's been helpful to what we're doing here at Teleon as well. So, Absolutely. And I think the difference, the difference maker is that you stay in touch. And I've mentioned it before on the show, my good friend, Jim Wood, probably one of the best sales guys I've ever met. Like he's the kind of guy that wakes up in the morning and when someone else is checking stock prices, he's shooting text messages. He's 
actually thinking, not manipulatively, actually thinking about people in his network that he wants to help and that he is just thinking about and he wants to see how they're doing. And I, I see you in a similar light where you have always been thinking about how to help your clients or the people that you want to be your clients. And that is the the core of relationship building, which is how can I, how can I serve you? What can I do better? Mm-hmm. One of the things that I was thinking about ahead of the interview is I wonder how Andrew has seen, because you were one of the early salespeople, business development, like deal junkies that close deals with the, the iconic portfolios, the Walmarts and targets of the industry, like the coveted scalable DG rooftop portfolios. What have you seen in the, I'll call it migration and thinking or what they're solving for from the CNI sector, corporate procurement over the last decade? How has it evolved for you as a salesperson in what you see, the kind of questions they're asking, the kind of things they're solving for the person with whom you're interacting compared to who it was a decade ago in the organization? Yeah, good question, right? Like the, the industry's obviously matured quite a bit. You know, we've been at this for, I've been at this for, I think this is year 15, almost 16, it's been a long time. Um, but, you know, these companies have grown with the market too. So they have really, really bright, you know, individuals, you know, on their, every company is different, whether it's a renewables team or a CSR, ESG team, whatever it may be that know a lot of them come from the development side too, but really know what to look for. They're asking all the right questions. Um, many of them have done an exceptional amount of work, whether it be on site, off site, both, uh, where it's pretty programmatic and it's just, here's our you know process and we'll, we'll include you type of thing. But so from that perspective, it's gotten harder I would say, but you know, it's, it's harder to, to, uh, there's a lot more barriers to entry. Not as much of a consultative sale either. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of these guys know kind of the, the process, uh, or the incentives in certain areas and, um, don't necessarily need as much of the help. But what I will say is what's interesting of even like most recently, um, and this is not a knock to, to kind of the brokerage side of, of the business, but a lot of these big companies I've, I've seen over the last couple of years, they've gone out to um, you know, source some of these third-party uh, consultants to run formal processes for them. And what I've seen is, you know, a lot of times these companies, maybe it's just due to scale or or it's just better for for their business, but they'll drive the 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 bulk of these big businesses into just large offsite utility scale VPPA type of transactions, leaving kind of our sector overlooked again. And so we're actually finding, uh, it's almost almost coming full circle back around where we can kind of say, well, yeah, it may be, you know, kind of small on your radar at at this moment in time, keep doing what you're doing. We think you should be doing all of the above, but don't overlook this opportunity here. And so we're kind of seeing that that we can, you know, potentially come back into that fold and, and, and be that, you know, onsite, you know, behind the meter expert for them. I feel like I could probably do a whole interview just about your experience in the early days and the things that you learned that have, that are serving you now. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about some specifics, but there is a, you know, there's an area of your career and resume that I want to explore a little bit because you had the relatively unique experience in the grand scheme of <laughs> the 8 billion humans on the planet where you helped found a company you grew it to tremendous scale and you had an exit circa 2019, right? So coming up on three years since that transaction. 2017. 2017, five years since that yeah. transaction was closed. <laughs> See how time, I don't even, I can't even keep track of it. And a relatively early success. And I come from the music industry. So I think about that freshman success begets often like the sophomore slump. And and I referred to that, ironically, as I think about it now, I've referred to that in... Um, a couple of episodes I've done, probably even Mike's, because I like to think through kind of the decision-making that goes into what do I do next? And there are a lot of folks right now, because as we went through like a white hot 18 months of M&A, there are a lot of folks right now or in the next 18 months who are listening to this and they're thinking, hmm, my earnout's coming and I got I want to figure out if I'm going to stick around or if I'm going to go somewhere else. When you sold Green Skies, can you talk about the sense of accomplishment or the, like where that left you with regards to, you were 30, what, 32, 34 when you sold Green Skies? Yeah, 30, 32, yeah. 32. 
and it was and it was a not insignificant sale. You guys, you guys did really well for your shareholders, and uh, you did really well for uh, the team. Talk about kind of how you started thinking about what's next in your life. Yeah, sure. It was an interesting time for 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 all of us. Um, you know, one thing that I, I've told folks, you know, uh, that ask about that at first, at least, is you know what was really strange for me was basically going from you know working in because we didn't have I don't know if you know this or not we had no stay on or earn out it was just a sale and kind of go on your merry way so you know when it was just fast and furious of running a business and you know heading like tracking a closing to then we closed and it was just silence you know all the emails stopped all the phone calls stopped. It was, it was eerie. Um, you know, those first few, few days or weeks right after, you know, selling, you know, people weren't asking you to make decisions and, uh, it was, it was kind of over. So that, and, and we were saying good, you know, sending out goodbye emails and, and kind of farewell notes to clients and customers and folks. So, you know, after the dust settled, if you will, you know, my wife and I traveled a little bit and, and that got boring. You know, we saw, we've, you know, we, we didn't have kids at the time. It was just the two of us. We were kind of trekking around and I was like, I need to get back to, to doing something. And so, you know, we did, ha- we had a non-compete. Um, so, you know, I couldn't necessarily be directly in, t- in, the, in the space. How long was that? Two years. So not, not long. And in, in hindsight, that, that in goes hindsight, in a blank. not long, but in your thirties, that's yeah. a long time. <laughs> exactly. And it actually, I think it, it, it more or less stepped down at like 18 months. So I could, I think I could have realistically participated in, in certain sectors, but you know, I, I did, I had some ideas and things that I wanted to, to do outside of renewables. I, again, I was 31. I had been doing it for 10 years, my entire professional career at the time. I was kind of thinking, okay, that was fun. Maybe let's try something new. And so, you know, I, I did, I, I started to dabble in, in more or less the tech sector. I, I had some really uh, bright folks, you know, working with me on more or less supply chain transparency tracking. And um, it, it, was, it was interesting. I loved it. Um, but what happened was my non-compete burned off and the phone started ringing. And, you know, I started to say, well, should I think about getting back into this space? And so, you know, I basically had a handful of calls with, with you know, energy directors at companies, just kind of seeing where things were. You know, this was, we had a new president. Things changed so quickly in our industry. I felt like I had been away for forever. I needed to more or less reset and come back and see if it was, you know, something that I was still, you know, interested in and had, you know, a passion for. And so, you know, I spent a few months in, you know, kicking tires and thinking about that. And it, it turned out I, I did. And so, you know, I, I rounded up a few, you know, individuals that I had worked with previously, one of, you know, my former partners of, of Green Skies and a couple of my, you know, executives and, and started to think about doing something new. And so that's, that's kind of how, you know, Teleon came to be, right? So we, this was now, I think, 2019. So roughly two years after we had closed. And, you know, we, we kind of started reaching out to, to different institutional lenders to talk about, you know, creating something new. So the process of discovery for you of looking for Blue Ocean was actually reach out to the folks you know who are financing projects and, and financing uh, development shops and say, where do you see gaps? Yeah, well, it was both. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I, I know energy directors at, at a lot of big companies. So it was just having kind of the virtual cup of coffee, just seeing where things were at, what, what their goals and plans looked like. And then, yeah, and then certainly having conversations on the the financial side to, to see kind of what what project finance, but also what what kind of platform interest folks had in, in starting something new. Because I knew that if I was ever to get back into the industry, it wasn't going to be just off of my or friends and family checkbook. Could we have rounded up necessary dollars? Absolutely. But if you want to get back into, you know, the doors of Amazon or Walmart, you can be the richest guy. Well, unless you're, I guess, unless you're, (laughs) unless you're at the top of that food chain, but you can be a very wealthy individual and, you know, be well-funded and they'll still say, no, no, no. You know, you need, you need to be a, a hundred year old multi-billion dollar, you know, global institution you know, backing and owning these, these assets with us for us to feel comfortable. So I knew that we needed to partner with a big bank. And so that's why I said, all right, well, 
let's not jump in with two feet yet. Let's have conversations um, and see where things go. And so, you know, we were having a few different sets of, of, of dialogue, you know, going with, with folks and basically, you know, two, roughly two weeks after, three weeks after that non-compete ended at SPI Salt Lake, we got a term sheet from Goldman Sachs to, to back us to kind of start something new. So, you know, that's, that's kind of what, what set us into the trajectory of where we are now with, with creating that joint venture partnership and, I'll just give you one quick, quick kind of anecdote of how, how we got going because it was an interesting one. This is now fall 19 negotiated, you know, term sheet through, through that end of year and, you know, kind of definitive docs through the, through the winter. And we closed on this partnership on March 6th of 2020. So literally that was Friday, March 6th, the next Monday COVID swept the nation. I think by Tuesday or Wednesday, people were, buying toilet paper. So it was, you couldn't really draw up a, a more interesting start. <laughs> um, but we, we kind of look back and laugh at this point. Have you been curious about utility scale storage? SunGrow's revolutionary liquid cooled solution is revolutionizing the storage landscape. It's built in DC to DC coupling combined with other features like a higher Energy density and 3% slower battery degradation make it a robust solution that companies nationwide are choosing. You can learn more about this innovative solution by SunGrow by visiting mysuncast.com forward slash SunGrow. Hey, Sunshine, clouds got you down? It doesn't have to be that way. Leading solar enterprises around the world are making the most of their investments in Sunshine with Solar Anywhere, the data and intelligence service from Clean Power Research. Whether you're designing or operating solar assets, Solar Anywhere helps you reduce project risk and improve performance benchmarking. Learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash solar anywhere. As you processed you know, two years of taking some time off, still being connected to the industry, did it feel like, to your surprise, the Fortune 50, the really big entities were still an underserved market. Like that was a sufficient blue ocean where you and your team had enough of a competence and still connection to those clients that it was defensible as a market entry strategy. Is that, I feel like that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? We, we've been at this for so long. We've built big businesses and as of other companies, I feel like it's still tip of the iceberg. A lot of these big companies that maybe have, have done a lot or, or real volume, there's still so much more. You know, if I look at someone like a, a, a Target or a Walmart, one, one of these folks that we've worked with, a lot of different things are coming into play, right? So there's, there's, new, there's new store development or new distribution development. So there's always new buildings being built. There's the fact that we only typically were all, you know, offsetting... 15 to 30% of their actual load. So there's a whole nother component there. There's the fact that a lot of these projects that we developed 10 and 15 years ago are coming up on end of term. So there's the, there's the concept of, you know, decommissioning and recommissioning and bringing, you know, projects of old, you know, up to, you know, current NEC code and safety requirements. You know, you think back to stuff that we were developing, you know, back in, you know, 2010, Nico, right? It was, you know, centralized inverters that are, you know, now bankrupt and gone manufacturers and, and or Solyndra, you know, manufacturers that have gone by the wayside. So no RSD rapid shutdown. So there's things that need to kind of happen, certainly when you're on a building to where folks may say, well, rather than extending, uh, yeah, let's get somebody in new to kind of absorb that termination value, bring a new system in and, and bring it up to code. So there's a lot of opportunity there that we see. And then one thing that I, I personally think is, is really interesting is the, just the differentiated product offering sector, right? You know, we're, we're on a building envelope. Solar's one component, right? There's, there's so many other things that can be done and offered within that facility or within that portfolio. And it typically is rolling up to the same team and or decision maker. So things like EV, battery, energy efficiency, so there's a whole lot more that we can kind of bring into the fray, I think, uh, that, that's, that's interesting to us. Something you brought up made me think about the fact that, you know, you were selling projects as far back as 2005, 2006. Typically those were 20 to 25 year PPAs. Those assets 
to your point, were central inverter. They were 250 to 300 watt solar modules, not the 450s that we see going in now. How do you think about those earlier projects coming to the end of their life cycle? What happens to those? How does that get integrated into uh, the kind of development and asset management shop that you're building? Yeah. So there's two sides of it. One is, you know, what we can do and offer to the the customer, right? So to your point, yeah, you're using, you're taking old, potentially old panels that are, you know, 200 to 300 ish, you know, watts each. And now you can replace them with something almost double that. Same footprint, same form factor. Yeah. I mean, obviously you can use larger format, you know, modules as well. Uh, but, but on a, on a per square foot basis, yeah, you can almost go up to, you know, double the the size. So your, your system size can grow. And so there's an efficiency offering there. And then what's interesting though, is what, what happens to those solar panels? And that's something that we're, we're, you know, hopefully maybe there's some listeners out there that, that have some cool ideas too, but, you know, we have some, some interesting ideas, uh, from a, from a donating, uh, you know, type of concept. They still have useful life. They, these things will, will continue to generate power. So can you recycle them? Absolutely. But can they be repurposed? I think is maybe the cooler story there. And and can we send these to, I don't know, disaster, you know, restoration, disaster zones, or developing world countries that need that need the energy? Um, so there, there's definitely you know something there that that I think should be thought about, kind of on the the other the other side of the life of these of these panels while we're you know replacing them with kind of brand new you know systems for these these large companies. But yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of at the end of the day, you know, rooftops need to be replaced. You know, there's a, there's a lifespan. So you can't necessarily just let a system sit forever. So there's a natural kind of timeline to where we can say, all right, let's take this system off, allow you to re-roof, re-roof or recover uh, your rooftop and we'll put a new system on for you. Are those contracts being renegotiated? How are the off takers, the person that's buying the kilowatt hours that maybe had a contract are those contracts being bought out? How, how, how are the, I guess I'm trying to ask is like, how is the Fortune 50, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 thinking about renewal versus replacement of the asset and the contract? Like what's, what's changed since the days when you sold those deals? Yeah, I think for the most part, safety, right? I mean, when, it, when it comes to the electrical, you know, engineering side of things and, and just kind of rapid shutdown and, or module level you know, optimization, things like that didn't exist. So there's been obviously some technological advances. It's not that folks won't extend because I think in a lot of cases you'll see extensions being, being utilized. It's more so will folks come in and say, rather than doing that, you know, we can put a brand new larger system on your roof while absorbing your termination value of that, of that PPA. So there's no penalty to Either that it depends who the developer or owner was. Most of these assets have have been sold, you know, several times over and have changed hands. Um, but it's it's basically folks like me uh, or Talion will come in and say we can absorb that cost, put a brand new system on, allow you to re-roof your roof, and and you'll have a you know up to NEC twenty twenty or twenty twenty two code you know, system. Are those clients going with long term contracts, or are you seeing the tenor of the contract being reduced and Therefore, you as the developer taking on more long-term risk of the asset. Like who, who owns the asset? Talk to me a bit about that in terms of like the customer's willingness to sign these long-term contracts versus the developer's willingness, as we see in the case of Intersect and others to say, man, this is like, there's a whole merchant market that we're missing out on. Yeah. Behind the meter, it, you know, CNI is, it's, it's always been the struggle of, you know, we developers want long-term contracts and, you know, building owners are, are you know, Companies want as short as they can as they can get. So there's a little give and take. You know, I would say you know we've got some really you know good partners that we work with that you know work with us in terms of either matching incentive timelines or are willing to kind of go out you know to a certain time frame to allow for the economics to make sense. There's a tipping point in our in our industry. You know, if you go too short, you know, it gets to a point where you can't offer a competitive rate to to an end user. So, um, you know, I think overall we're still seeing you know folks you know willing to kind of execute those fifteen to twenty year terms you know where where needed. Andrew, as we discussed earlier, uh, you know, mentors in both of our lives have had a big impact. I know that you were an autodidact, teaching yourself a lot, but there must have been folks who 
made an impression on the way that you see the world and potentially continue to. Can you talk a bit about the impact of mentors on your life and career and how do you pay that forward? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, in the early days of of starting and, and growing Green Skies, you know, Mike Silvestrini and I had some key mentors, right? Frankly, our other two partners, you know, Mike's father-in-law Art and then, you know, our, our kind of initial investor, Bob Landino. And so, mm-hmm. you know, for me, I would say, you know, because I, I worked very closely with him through those years was Bob Landino. He had a had a operating company at the time. You know, he I think taught me to just respect everyone in your, in your world. It's certainly in the, in the, in the day to day, uh, just get showing, no matter what the position was, what walk of life, showing everyone the same level of, of respect and doing it through, through action uh, and seeing it firsthand to me is something that is absolutely, you know, resonated and stuck with me forever. I mean, think about it. He, they made, made me a partner at 20, 22, 23 years old. So, you know, there's no bigger way of, of proving and showing that, but, you know, seeing it over, over ye- the years to come kind of through meetings and, and whatever it may be, um, that, that's certainly something that, that has, has stuck with me. And, and honestly, you know, what better, what, I get to work with him now. We work shoulder to shoulder. He's my COO here, you know, at Teleon. So it's been a, a really, really cool journey learning from him kind of, through the years and now being able to work, you know, so closely with them again has been, been, been pretty fun. Has there been a way uh, that you can recall you actively sought to, as a, a mentor of mine says, send the elevator back down actually to mentor and bring others up? You know, I, I, I get, yeah, I don't look at myself as kind of the, the, the mentor, but I think it, it's happened over the years. And, and honestly, one of my, one of my partners here, Mike Daly, he worked with me at Green Skies. Um, you know, I kind of brought him into into the mix and into the business development world. And you've paid me some very nice compliments. He he's just as good, if not better. <laughs> this kid, you know, he knows you know the industry cold now. He's he's been at it for man almost six seven years probably, and you know has probably a better you know, knack for, you know, forging and developing relationships than I ever had. Um, so I, I teach him and help him as, you know, however I can, but you know, he, he wows me more, more often than not. So I don't know if that's, uh, you know, sending it back or if it's just a two way street, but, um, you know, he's been, he's been a, a pretty impressive partner, both at Green Skies and now here at Tellion. Along that line, or is there any advice that you might have for other entrepreneurs that are in the throes of startup life? They're trying to figure out how to ba- how to balance and manage the growth in in an ever evolving industry. I mean, man, this is it's the solar coaster. So, I mean, it depends if you if you want to talk different industry, but man, this this industry has its ups and downs um, for sure. I mean, I would say. To entrepreneurs, you know, starting off, you, you need to surround yourself with with a good team. And that's one thing that I, I absolutely realized, you know, through the growth of Green Skies and it starting off as maybe just a two man show. It got to a point where Mike and I were saying, we, we physically can't do this. We need to build out a team, put processes and protocols in place and kind of put structure to this. And so from day one, you know, in starting Teleon, you know, obviously we've taken 10 plus years of 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 trial and error and, and knowledge that we, that we, that we gained, you know, through the, the green skies process and brought that to Teleon and starting from day one, you know, having that team of folks around you and kind of putting programmatic processes in place uh, from day one, I think has been a really big you know, benefit to, to what we're doing here. What do you look for in particular in filling out that team? Like what are the skills that Jim Collins says you got to get the right people on the bus and then figure out where it's going. Right. You're talking about this, this core concept of getting the right people on the bus. How do you identify the various skill sets that are required? And I'm wondering if anything in particular stands out as like a thing that you that you pick up on when you're trying to hire someone new to the team. Yeah, no, a timely question. We're, we're in kind of hyper growth mode right now. Um, you know, we're going from a small team of you know 12 or so to more than doubling through next year and projecting to you know more than double again so hiring and trying to you know find the right talent is something that's very real to us right now 
you know, you can say all the cliche things of, you know, need to be you know, driven and smart and all that. You know, honestly, when we meet with people, it's more about their energy, right? And how passionate they are about the space. Obviously, they, you know, if you're, if you're looking for an engineer, they need to have the right, you know, technical jobs to be that. But when you're vetting against, you know, many, many you know, qualified folks, you look for that kind of high quality, passionate energy that's going to bring kind of that uplifting, you know, spirit to the team, whether in, whether it's virtual or in the office, you know, cause we have folks kind of spread around too. It doesn't matter. You, you just, you want, you don't want to add someone that's going to kind of bring folks down. You want to add people that lift people up. So I mean, one of the things that we really look for is kind of that positive energy that f- someone wants to be in the space and wants to, to kind of help you grow your team and, and kind of, you know, lift everyone up around them. As you look out over the next three to five years and you're scaling your team, you're scaling the concept, where do you still see bottlenecks? What's preventing the kind of growth that we know is possible? Um, I think, you know, there's domestically here in the United States, there's, there's, there's certain you know, obvious issues, you know, things that we've experienced over the last year or, or, even up to current um, with with what's happening in, in DC right now, or you know with anti circ or some of the WRO you know import issues, you know those are I think I feel like those get sorted out at least to some extent over time. Where I think there's kind of been constant issue is in I hate to point the finger, but at the from the to the utility side. You know, having the bottlenecks for us um, have always kind of been within kind of the in- interconnection review and study and potentially, you know, added costs that, that we that we have to endure. And so put it this way, Nico, if, if that was solved, scale could be achieved a heck of a lot sooner uh, in, in, in much more of a broad um, region, I would say. So I, I feel like, you know, hopefully in... in the next five to 10 years, you know, that is something that can be streamlined or, 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 or simplified. Uh, cause that certainly slows, you know, folks down. And I, I, I can't speak to residential and utility scale as, as well as CNI, but, you know, I, I assume that the same challenges exist certainly on, on the utility scale and community solar and, uh, you know, side as well. So that, that would be one thing that I would, I would point a finger at. Andrew, I usually don't ask specifically current events, time, type of questions because this is generally evergreen interview content, but it's top of mind and timely. And I wonder your perspective on it. You guys are actively building projects backed by Goldman Sachs. There's a lot of contemplation right now about whether logistics is going to actually become, uh, still be an issue in the next, call it, you know, over what period of time. I saw an article recently that suggests that issues in the port that aren't widely known are preventing for product from being delivered. Right. And then that's, extending project timelines. I'm sure that the various trade issues and import issues will be resolved, but how do you see it in terms of the ripple effect over the next 12 to 18 months on module pricing and on project delivery timelines? I I think there's a lot of different, um, you know, factors at play, you know, certainly anti-CERC and and WRO and then, you know, inflationary pressures and and just kind of your your systemic being bottlenecks through supply chain, not even remotely tied to our industry, just globally. So that's, and that's been impacting kind of everything. Um, and, and, you know, I was thinking about it earlier, you know, our first project, you know, back, uh, as we kind of were ramping up here at Teleon was, it was, I think roughly six megawatt rooftop. And, you know, we had half of our panels, you know, show up at port and the other half were detained. Uh, so we were scrambling mid construction to try to piece together, you know, the remaining you know, balance of, of needed modules. So it's, that was kind of the, the welcome back to the industry, <laughs> get back on the solar coaster for us. But, you know, you know, I, do I think, do I think that goes away or, or corrects itself? I'm sure. Right. I, I don't have a crystal ball. I think it, it does though, you know, o- over, over time, we've seen a dramatic rise in lead times and cost. Uh, I'll say that. I mean, panels have gone up dramatically. I think we're all pretty confident they start to go down dramatically through next year, certainly kind of Q2 and beyond. But yeah, I don't, I don't have you know, any, any guarantees there. We're also seeing you know, long lead times on switch gear and, and some other things. So 
hope you know does that correct itself the hope is is yes uh, but right now you know we have to price projects with long schedules you know and and added costs in mind and if if things can improve great um but we we can't be cowboys and and saying well we just we think it's going to be x and, and and price to that we need to kind of uh you know take take this one step at a time it's definitely a challenging challenging time Andrew, I guess what I'm wondering, what everybody's wondering is how does this change the procurement habit or strategy at scale for a company like yours, where you have major commitments to make, major buyers lined up? You know, I, I think about your companies like yours and even uh, further down the line with bigger sort of financial commitments like Solve, the, the EPC firms that have to bite the bullet. Where do you see this affecting the procurement strategy for you and also over what time horizon or will it ever return back to what we called normal before? So I would say this, you know, without getting into too much detail or or kind of how we're, how we're handling some of our our client relationships. But one thing that we are trying to do to allow us um, more foresight and clarity is we're starting to talk about kind of year over year forward commitments with clients, you know, and these are with, with good relationships, right? You can't, you can't just walk into an RFP and say, we also want this along with it. But when we have kind of these longstanding bilateral relationships that with, with customers that understand a lot of the, the issues that are, that are happening both in our industry and abroad. So they see that. Um, And so one thing we, we are trying to do is, is put a little bit of a finer point on, on what, uh, kind of the the relationship and year over year growth looks like, and what that does for us is, you know, we can translate that downstream to our to our partners and vendors, giving you know our inverter suppliers or you know module manufacturers or racking or whatever it may, whatever it may be, uh, a little bit more of of a solid outlook uh, to either lock in pricing or at least guarantee delivery dates, so project milestones don't slip. So that's certainly something that our procurement team and EPC folks are are very very in tune with right now. So, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the one thing I can really discuss, I think that, that, that we're trying to handle. Yeah. You mentioned earlier how you guys are particularly, as I would have coined it, product mavens, technology mavens back in the green skies days in particular, you know, the reason we know each other is because you took that on uh, this product, Lumetta. And it reminded me as you were talking about that, you know, the reason we were sitting in that dinner uh, in Dallas, 2011 was because uh, Lumetta had a commitment from Green Skies, just like what you're talking about now. And it was a forward commitment to a certain amount. Oh my amount. God, you're right. It was a forward commitment to the tune of, I want to say 60 megawatts that you guys had committed to buy, uh, which is a big number for, um, for, for, for a small startup. And it was part of the cornerstone of our bid to sell that business to uh, another vertically integrated Chinese player. And it's so interesting to me that, you know, uh, now 11 years later, some of the things that we saw happen you know, a decade plus ago, ago in just positioning, strategic positioning by vendors in the marketplace to try and get those types of long-term commitments. Now the developers are having to turn and ask for from the vendors. And it's something that is not new for vendors like First Solar, for example, but certainly the savvier developers like Telion are making these kinds of commitments and for much longer periods of time than has been comfortable over the last seven, eight years, because uh, it's been such a precipitous drop in price and uh, sort of a buyer's market in in the industry. Yeah. I mean, well, I'll just say one thing, you know, that we always used to pride ourselves at Green Skies and that we've certainly carried on over here at Talion is we don't price change. You know, I don't want to have to go back to customers and say, oh, that that rate that we gave you, whatever it may be a month, six months, a year ago, we, we can't do that anymore. And it needs to go up by X. So we're transparent. You know, we, everyone kind of understands where we are in, in, in with the current, you know, environment right now. So it's just being able to have that, you know, level of, of, of dialogue with your, with your partners. And if you have good partners, they'll, they'll, they'll see that and understand that. Well, I'd love to hear a little bit more on personal development perspective. I believe that Leaders or readers, I think that personal development is a key uh, component to growth of any executive and the business they lead. I'd love to know, are there any particular resources that you've leaned on that have helped you become a better 
uh, solar uh, executive or um, leadership generally from business building perspective. And I'm also curious just generally what's on your nightstand? Like how do you feed your hmm. mind? <laughs> I honestly, Nigo, I, I figured you'd ask some question tied to books and it's just so funny right now. Cause I have a, uh, a just over one year old and a, and a three and a half year old. So my, my reading has plummeted in the last year. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm reading dragons love tacos and, and books nice. like that. That's so. one of our favorites. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, 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 there's a handful of books that I'm, I'm dying to get back to. Um, you know, one thing I'll say, you know, the, there's one book that does stick out, though, at least from a, a leadership or strategic you know, mindset. And it's called, I think, The Strategist. And again, I, I used to I mean, I love more or less just case study books. But this this was a book by, uh, I think, Cynthia Montgomery um, out of the, out of the Harvard, Harvard Business School. And um, it, it just kind of dissects many different you know, business cases and you know, the decisions made by the leaders at the time. Um, and it's probably one that'd be interesting to go back and read again, uh, you know, seeing if some of those decisions played out because I haven't read it in a, in a number of years. But that's one that um, I, I, really, I really did like. Um, and so on my nightstand, though, man, there is a, there's, it's an unrelated to the industry book. It's an Anthony Bourdain <laughs> book. Yeah. That yeah, the world traveler. Or, uh, I think that's the name of it um, that I'm trying to trying to start here. But uh, my my bedtime reading is is usually to a three year old. So hopefully we'll get to open that up soon. Many of us have been there, my friend. <laughs> do you have any uh, other than cleaning diapers and uh, feeding babies? Do you have any particular morning or evening routine that has given you particular leverage or helped make your day feel normal? Um, you know. I I'm an, I'm a former athlete. I need, I work out. I need to exercise. Um, if I don't, I kind of start to crawl in my own skin. So I, every, I try to every morning exercise. That's actually when I listen to, to, you know, podcasts like yours you know, in the morning. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll wake up early, hopefully before the kids <laughs> and, and, and get a workout in. And then, you know, at night it's, you know, I try to, um, you try to disconnect. It's hard, you know, when you're running a company. Um, but I try to, you know, disconnect and, and have some some level of family time. And I cook dinner every night. Uh, so that that's you something cook. that, yeah, that kind of helps me decompress and wind down a bit. You know, that's interesting though, right? Like you, you I look back to the the start of Green Skies versus <laughs> the start of, of Teleon now, and how life is is different. You know, I, I think you know back then, you know, you could work until ten, eleven, twelve at night. Um, and kind of uh, on your own beat to your own drum. And now, you know, with family and different level of responsibilities, it's, it's, it's having, it's kind of not a challenge, but it, it sometimes can be, you know, that work-life balance um, and making sure you, you unplug and disconnect um, you know, at the appropriate times to, to be able to be you know present and, and with, with, with the family. Um, so that's why, you know, we try to, at least at some point, you know, turn the phone off or put it away and, uh, and, and, have dinner. <laughs> well, brother, this uh, journey that you're on is an interesting one. I've enjoyed following along with you and seeing the success upon success. Uh, congratulations to you for that. If there are folks who've been listening and want to follow along in your journey, where do you like to be found? Where would you direct them? I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. So that's, that's certainly the easy the easy place to, to, to find me. Um, also you shoot me an email any, at any time. It's just, it's pretty simple. It's AC, my initials at telion.com. And that's T E L Y O N.com. Yep. That's right. We didn't get into what's in a name. How, why Telion? You know, it's a play on telos or telos, which kind of means, you know, the, the end goal and what you strive for. So, uh, you know, what we're doing here, we're trying to, to reach, a, a the, the end goal of a, of a clean energy future. So that's kind of, that's where the, the origin started. Fantastic. Good way to tee up the final question. Let's, uh, end today as we always do with what we call bold prediction. Andrew, what one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? You know, I don't know if no one's tracking it, but one thing that I really um, am interested in and want to see really grow is, and it's certainly, it's, it's specific to my industry of the, the CNI space at least, but it is smart building technology and automation. You know, I feel like there's a huge play in, you know, kind of knitting together 
the living, breathing organism of a building. So kind of bringing together all the different renewable energy sources, whether it be the energy efficiency measures installed, solar, offsite, you know, procurement, um, HVAC cooling, um, you know, EV charger, EV chargers, battery resiliency, et cetera, you know, but knitting that all together into a, a you know, highly automated you know, piece of software and then spreading that across large portfolios and large cities, you know, with demand response. There's a, there's a whole world of untapped, I think, future there where, you know, that I think that is what we're going to see really, really grow in the next kind of five to 10 years. Uh, and, you know, I'm excited by it and I, I want to be a part of it. So I think that that's something that I think we're, we're pretty interested in, in, in learning a lot more here. Love it. Andrew Chester is this co-founder and CEO of Teleon, and it has been really great to finally get a chance to dig deep, go back in history, unpack the archives, and hear more about the essence of relationship building that have supported so many uh, relationships moving forward and companies moving forward with renewable energy. Thanks for all you do, my friend. Well, thank you, Nico. Appreciate you having me on here. And I, I apologize. It's been so long. We got, we have to not let the, so many years go by for, for the next time. So, uh, thank you for all that you do and, in, in, uh, in, in growing Suncast. It's, it's been impressive to see it, it, it mature and grow into what it is and keep doing what you do, man. So appreciate it. All right, Solar Warrior. Oh man. So many good stories from Andrew Chester. I just want to say thank you, Andrew, for giving us time to learn about your background and the the way that you've helped grow this industry, the vision you have for how it can grow even more. I uh, wanted to congratulate you on the success of your newest venture. And I hope the folks will go and find out more about you by following you on LinkedIn. If you haven't followed Andrew or me on LinkedIn, you can easily find not just all the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion that we've had here on Suncast and uh, the book recommendations, so much more, but you can find our social media links at the blog on mysuncast.com. It's fairly easy to find. And certainly if you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll have no problem finding it because we link to it in several different places. Since I know you're going to be hopping online and hopefully you're going to be on LinkedIn, I'd love it if you'd share one of our posts or share how this episode particularly impacted you with someone else over on LinkedIn or maybe Twitter. It's a real treat when we get to hear from you. I know Andrew would certainly welcome the opportunity to hear what resonated for you. You will not want to miss out as we're going to start rebroadcasting our segments from RE Plus Media Zone in the coming week and weeks ahead. Most of the Tuesdays coming up are going to be dedicated to highlights from the Media Zone, live conversations with some of the most impactful entrepreneurs I got a chance to sit down with while we were back in Anaheim. And next Thursday, coincidentally, uh, one of my favorite days of the year, <laughs> it's the anniversary of Suncast, happens to be my birthday. I get to share the stage with one of my favorite entrepreneurs of the year, just such a gem of a human being, Sandhya Ganapati, the CEO of EDPR. I promise you will want to tune in to that conversation. It is just dripping with gold nuggets. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors who help make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And of course, that's where you could learn how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they do. I want to remind you that I appreciate you being here. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.